Amen. Well, good morning. So good to be with you this morning. Let's continue our worship. If you turn to Acts chapter 8, in this marvelous study and the testimony of the early church, Acts chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning. So if you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts 8, 1 through 8. This is God's word. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For Unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. (coughs) Excuse me, a couple of months ago when I was putting together the sermon schedule for this fall, I called Chris Rue and I asked if he was up for preaching from Acts chapter 7, which of course he was more than willing to do. And I thought to myself, I wonder if he'll have the same eagerness when he sees that his assigned text is actually 60 verses. I called him up this past Monday after listening to the sermon online and I said, Chris, I'm really stressing out here. We've got eight verses to cover this coming Lord's Day, and after studying this passage for a couple of weeks, I'm not sure I can get past the first four. Do you have any advice? I appreciate your uh, labors and the precise, faithful exposition, Chris. And actually, the, the text that he covered both last week and the week before really set the stage not only for our diving back into the book of Acts here at Lakewood Bible Chapel, but really they highlighted a pivotal moment for the nation of Uh, Israel, as well as all of humanity, Uh, for it was at this moment when Stephen reviewed the history of the nation and their continual rejection of their God and his prophets, uh, the moment the members of the Sanhedrin were enraged and the people laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul so they could better lob huge rocks at the skull and chest of God's most recent servant, it was at this moment that the focus of the Lord shifted from the people of Israel to the other people groups of the world, including Samaritans and outright Gentiles. This section of Acts, this section of the Scriptures, marks that moment and the ushering in of the era when the temporal hardening explained in Romans chapter 11 would come upon the people of God. That moment when the words of Christ and his commission to his disciples would Uh, began to be fulfilled, that they would be his witnesses throughout Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. We see that taking place right here in Acts chapter 8. So I don't want us to miss the the significance of last week's 
in the prior week's text. This is a crucial section uh, in understanding the, and not only the age we're living in now, uh, the church age, uh, future events yet to come, but really all of redemptive history. It's crucial to understand how Stephen's stoning and the subsequent persecution becomes the spark required to set the blaze of evangelism, not just in Israel, not just to the Jewish people, but, but in fact to, to a people from every tribe, from every tongue, every language, to the whole world. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. In Acts chapter 2, Christ began the work of building his church through the power of the Holy Spirit poured out on believing Jews, ethnic Israelites. And he continues to add Jews to his church even up to and including today. Uh, But this is the moment in Acts when Christ begins to build his church with non-Jews. He will continue this work until each and every last Gentile is saved. Until, as Romans 11.25 says, the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, at which point he will remove the temporal, spiritual hardening of the Jewish people and all of Israel, an entire generation of ethnic Israelites, will be saved. This will happen at the end of the Great Tribulation period, right before the Lord comes back to set up his earthly kingdom where he will reign for a literal thousand-year period on this earth. And we see this shift play out right here before our eyes, right here uh, in chapters 6, 7, and 8, which is why it's such a monumentally significant section of Scripture and why Stephen's sermon, and subsequently Chris's sermon, was so important for us here at Lakewood Bible Chapel. So let's dive in here uh, to see exactly how this went down. How this shift in focus began to take place here. Point number one in your outline. Uh, Second half of verse one, Luke writes, There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. There arose on what day? On the very day that Stephen was stoned. Chapter seven, verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. On that day, that very day, a great persecution arose against Christ's church in Jerusalem. Now we say we've already seen persecution up to this point in Acts, right? Remember back in chapter 2, the apostles were just filled with that same Holy Spirit of God themselves. They began speaking in tongues, in actual foreign languages that they had not previously learned, yet folks from other nations heard them clearly. Uh, Luke says, everyone who heard were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? He said, all were amazed, perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? 
But others, mocking, said they're filled with new wine. They were mocked right from the get-go. Sure, it was mild persecution. Many of us have faced similar mockery ourselves, but it was a form of persecution from the unbelieving world nonetheless. They were going to be seized and threatened in chapter 4, arrested and beaten in chapter 5, and their response not only to boldly declare we must obey God rather than men, not only to unhesitatingly implicate and condemn the most powerful counsel in the world concerning the brutal execution and crucifixion of the Messiah, not only to stand firm and remain steadfast in their conviction that there is salvation for Israel in the Lord Jesus Christ and no one else, but they actually left that place bearing the physical marks of affliction, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor, uh, to suffer being persecuted, not for any old cause, not for any old name, but for the name, for the name of Christ, persecuted for righteousness' sake. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. And then Stephen falsely accused of speaking against Moses and blasphemy against the temple. He speaks the words given to him by the Holy Spirit of God and they stone him for it. And on that day, on that day, a great persecution rose against the church in Jerusalem. That means great, uh, megas, loud, abundant persecution. Why was it so great? Uh, what made this persecution so great? Well, this is the first time that a member of the church was killed for their faith in Christ. Not just threats, not just imprisonment, not just beatings, but it was the first act of martyrdom against the church, a, a, a martyrdom that would set off a string of many more martyrdoms, which would continue throughout the rest of the books of Acts, throughout the rest of the New Testament, through the rest of the 1st century and 2nd century and 3rd century and 4th century, all the way even up to today. Um, Stephen's body was the very first seed that was planted into the ground, ground that would yield a harvest for the gospel and a spread of the word to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And really the fascinating thing about all this is something I can't help but chuckle at just a little bit, is that these particular persecutors were actually the scatterers of the seed that would be planted throughout all the region in the, in the days following. That's what Luke says. Look, at, look again at the second part of verse 1. He says, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The apostles stayed back for now. But that they there in verse 1 is a reference to the church, not including the original 12. They refers to other believers, including prominent church leaders, as we'll see in a moment here uh, when, when we hear of Philip's travels. But the they are the many who believe uh, and they were primarily Hellenistic or Greek-speaking Jewish believers in Christ. Because of great persecution, Luke says, they were scattered. Now this word for scattered here, it doesn't speak of a general scattering or even a scattering of something that is essentially gone from that point, like dust in the wind or 
uh, ashes in an ocean. No, this was for a specific purpose. This was God-ordained. The word here is diaspiro, which means to sow hither and yon, to sow here and there. It's exactly like the Hebrew word Jezreel, which means God sows and scatters. To sow seed throughout, to scatter abroad, figuratively in the sense of a sower sowing seed, which is planted in the ground and bears good fruit. Jesus used this very same word when he was describing the scattering of seed in a parable in Luke chapter 8. He said, a farmer went out to sow seed, spiral, and as he sowed, some fell upon soil that was trampled underfoot. It was eaten by birds. Others had shallow roots. Others were choked out by vines. Yet others grew up and produced a great harvest. And Jesus said, now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The seed is the word of God. Then he goes on and he tells about the soil types. Three unbelieving soils that perish. One believing soil that bears fruit for eternal life. In this case... Those who initiated this great persecution against the church by killing one of its prominent members for speaking against the Holy Spirit-inspired truth essentially reached into their little farmer's bag of seed and cast the message of the gospel throughout all the region. They cast the word of the one that they despised into all of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that seed has not stopped growing since, even through the persecuted children of God up to this very day, as you hear my voice, it's still growing. What they intended for evil, God meant for good. And to call many people, many foreigners even, as we'll see, to himself through the same power, the same name of the very Christ they were trying to extinguish. This is great news. One preacher asked this, he said, is, is the death sentence to Stephen a death sentence to the movement? And the answer is a resounding no. No. It's like stamping out a fire. Trying to stamp out the fiery embers, and, and, and in that stamping, you just send the embers into the air, and it creates a ring of fire wherever it goes. Worse than it was before. Now Chris mentioned this last week, but it's worth repeating. Uh, second century theologian, historian uh, Tertullian, speaking of uh, Christian persecution, wrote this. Kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. Your injustice is proof that we are innocent. The oftener we are mowed down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. Now, personally, I think those words will be crucial to remember in our nation in the days to come. The blood of Christians is seed. In this case, and here in verse 1, the blood and body of Stephen was the seed sown that bore much missionary fruit, even as promised by our Lord Jesus Christ. And don't forget, uh, Stephen was unjustly martyred here. This was, of course, recognized by every truly pious Jew in the city. Devout men whom Luke says in verse 2 buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Now, in all fairness, we don't know if these were believers, non-believers, members of Hellenistic Judaism, uh, righteous men of Hebraic Judaism, or if they were paid professional mourners, which were common in that day and, and time. Luke doesn't tell us. He just says they're devout. 
One clue that we might uh, be able to confirm that these righteous, even unbelieving Jews who were genuinely and sincerely grieved over this death is that the Mishnah or the Jewish writings actually forbade the public mourning of a tradi- or traditional bury, um, uh, traditional bury of someone who had been stoned. They said, "You can't do that. You can't give them the, the burial as, as a right- the same burial as a righteous man. You can't give somebody who's stoned the same mourning that you would give a righteous man." This was considered a dishonorable death. But the fact that these men, these devout or reverent men, were lamenting publicly over his death, again, Luke says, in great lamentation. The fact that this lamentation and burial is included here in verse 2 tells me that these guys were just enraged at what was clearly an unjust murder. And they weren't afraid to let the people in the city know about it. They They were loudly lamenting here. That's what this was, by the way. That's what all persecution of Christians is. Even today, it's unjust, it's unwarranted, it's unrighteous, it's evil and satanic. It's evil and satanic oppression, and in most cases, many cases, murder of God's elect. So they buried Stephen, his first martyr. They planted the seed, most likely into a cave tomb like our Lord was placed into, though we don't know that for sure. What we do know is this, from a purely worldly status-saving, false religion-preserving, pitiable attempt to contain this talk of Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, they, they failed miserably. They not only failed, but they actually aided in its rapid expansion and spread, uh, spread this gospel message throughout the region and the land. They were trying to stamp it out. This is the same thing happens today, China. In other places around the world, they try to persecute Christians and it just grows and grows and grows. Those in the world who think they have power, who think they are stamping out Christianity by silencing some, beating others, and even killing believers in Christ are actually only used as pawns. First by their father, the devil, but ultimately by the providential will of the Lord Most High who calls a people to himself using a number of various methods, including including persecution. We can praise the Lord for his sovereign, predetermined wisdom in this regard, right? Amen? Let's move on now from the persecuted in point two to the persecutor in point three in your outline. We do remember this uh, young man mentioned in the first part of verse one and down in verse three, don't we? This is the same young man that Luke just got done describing at the end of chapter seven. Then they cast Stephen out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now personally, I don't think we do a good enough job of emphasizing how evil and totally depraved this young man Saul was before he became the beloved apostle in Acts chapter 9. Look what's said here in verse 1a says, and Saul approved of Stephen's execution. Now, interestingly, that word for approve there is the very same word that he uses at the end of Romans chapter 1 when he's speaking of the, uh, of the people who God abandoned to their, the lusts of their own hearts, to debased minds, to disqualified minds. Remember what he said? He said, those such people know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die... They not only do them, but give what? Approval. 
They give approval to those who practice them. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Saul approved of the execution of a Holy Spirit-indwelled man of God. Verse 3. This same Saul was ravaging the church. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. While we may fall short of describing the level of uh, depravity in Paul's pre-converted life, Luke certainly does not. He says Saul ravaged the church. We sometimes use this word today to describe the most horrific cases of sexual abuse and rape. So brutal... So horrific was Saul's persecution against believers, both men and women, by the way, that he would go on post-conversion to call himself the chief of sinners, the greatest sinner. Why? Well, he'll go on to tell us. Even in Acts chapter 2, as he's praying to Christ in the temple, he says this, In one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Acts 26, he says, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Not only did he cast the vote, he gave the orders and partook in the brutality. And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to the foreign cities. Galatians 1, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, tried to destroy it. Galatians 1.23, they were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. 1 Timothy 1, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent. Here Luke says Paul entered personally house to house, door to door, violently dragging these men and women out of their homes and throwing them into prison. He was ravaging the church. This is the imperfect tense, by the way, which means he was actively ravaging over and over and over, continually ravaging the church. Like a wild boar in a vineyard, says the psalmist in Psalm 80, so Saul was wreaking havoc and decimating and ravaging the church. He was even taking pleasure in it. Loved it. More on this Saul in the coming weeks, but I want you to look with me at the response of the people in verse 4. Look at the familiar uh, phrase in verse 4. Now those who were scattered, those who were scattered there, same phrase, Uh, Scattered to be sown, to be planted, like planting of a seed. seed. Those who were scattered went about cowering in fear. Is that what it says? Those who were scattered remained silent and bowed down to their oppressor. Is that what Luke says? Those who were scattered were found saying, we must obey man rather than God. They were found saying, what's the big deal? Let's just say we don't actually believe in Jesus or that we only believe some of the teachings in the Bible, you know, the non-offensive parts. We can do this. Let's just do anything we can to maintain our earthly status and preserve the safety afforded to us by our gracious earthly rulers. Is that what they said? No. 
Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Preaching the word. They went out preaching. Uh, This literally means they were scattered to spread the euangelion, the good news. What good news? The good news of Jesus Christ. The divine birth, the perfect life, the sacrificial death, the triumphant resurrection from the dead and the ascension to the right hand of the Father. That he was coming back one day as King of kings and Lord of lords to be judge and ruler over this earth. They were scattered to proclaim that salvation does not come by good works, but by grace alone. Through faith alone, in the one name of Jesus Christ alone. And though many were scattered, we're, we're given the testimony of one man in particular and his travels to one people in particular. Luke says in verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed the Christ. He went to Samaria preaching. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. Many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Uh, Philip, you remember, was Stephen's co-laborer and co-appointee for the distribution of bread back in Acts chapter 6. Many feel these were the first uh, deacons in the church. Philip was another Hellenistic or Greek-speaking Jew who was a part of the persecuted early church who was scattered by God and then used by God to bring the good news of the gospel to the region. Uh, To a people whom the pious Jews back in Jerusalem absolutely hated, right? Jews and Samaritans. Now exactly where Philip went in this city, we don't know. We do know that on a map, if you look at a map, it's north of Jerusalem, but because Jerusalem is a city set on a hill, Everywhere you went from Jerusalem, you went down. So it's above Jerusalem on the map, but Philip went down to the city of Samaria. And Luke says he has a captive audience. And this may be a good reason for the apostles staying back for now. Uh, Philip probably had a little bit more street cred. Um, He probably had a little bit more credibility with the Samaritans who hated the Jews just as much as the Jews hated them. But Stephen, he wasn't a, uh, uh, Philip wasn't a purely Hebraic Jew. Okay? His Hellenistic background probably, probably softened the people to this, uh, to this message that he had. Jews and Samaritans, they hated each other. They absolutely despised each other. And it's really critical that we grasp the, the magnitude of what's happening here with this testimony of Philip in Samaria. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 4. For a minute. Turn in your Bibles. We're not going to put it on the screen. John chapter 4. And as you turn there, recognize that Samaritans were ex- essentially half-breeds that came re- as a result of Hebrews mixing in with Gentiles during the uh, captivity and exiles. You can read about this in 2 Kings 17, Ezra 4, Ezra 9, Nehemiah 13. And it's important to note that these people believed in the one true God of Israel. Okay, they, they believed in the first five books of the scriptures. They believed them to be authoritative, inspired. So they believed in the one who was to come like Moses. But they were spurned by the Jews of Jerusalem when they wanted to come back from captivity and aid in rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. So in their pride, they rejected the inspiration of God's prophets 
And even the writings of King David, Solomon, and others who taught that the temple in Jerusalem was instituted by God. So they had their own temple on Mount Gerizim. They had their own sacrificial system. They wanted nothing to do with Jerusalem at this point, okay? That's the background. John chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. He came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, if that's Jewish time, we're talking about noon. Anyhow, verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, look what the Samaritan woman says to him. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? John says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jews hated Samaritans. And Samaritans hated Jews. Even Jesus referred to uh, the Samaritans as dogs at one point. they, They didn't like each other. But I want you to watch now how Jesus interacts with this particular Samaritan and a woman, no less. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman says to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his son and all his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come back here to draw water. And Jesus said, Go, call your husband, come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Well, the woman says, Sir, I believe that you are a prophet. Now listen here. Look at verse 20. This is key. The woman says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. She's talking about Mount Gerizim in Samaria. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In other words, there's coming a day when it's not about the physical temple in Jerusalem, which is, is exactly what got Stephen stoned, right? This is exactly what, what uh, Philip very likely came into the city proclaiming. Jesus says, You worship what you do not know. But we, meaning Jews, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And that's right. To the Jew first, also to the Greek. Gentiles share in God's blessings of Israel. 
That's why it's ridiculous to think that the church has replaced Israel or that the church supersedes Israel. No, the nations are blessed through Israel. One day, God will save and restore ethnic Israel, just like he promised. But Jesus says the hour is coming. He says it is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Remember, the Samaritans had their own temple. Same God, different temple. Wrong temple, wrong city, wrong mountain. The temple in Jerusalem was God's temple where his glory resided. So Jesus, very lovingly to this woman, but not withholding truth, says you guys blew it in that regard. You got it wrong. But an hour is coming where none of that will matter. True worshipers will worship that Father, your Father and mine, in spirit and in truth. And the woman says to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. That's me. Not long after this encounter with the woman at the well, Philip comes into town and says, there's no longer a dividing line between believing Jews and believing Samaritans. The Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth has broken down the nationalistic walls which separated us. The Messiah has come. He was killed at the hands of lawless men, but God raised him from the dead and exalted him to his right hand, and you can be saved by believing in this gospel by calling upon his name, by being indwelled with his very spirit so you can worship the Father in truth wherever you happen to preside on this planet. You can worship him wherever you happen to reside and you can worship him forevermore as he welcomes you into his presence for life, life, eternal life. And and the same is true of anyone here this morning who has not yet bent the knee to Christ alone for salvation. You can be saved this morning. You don't have to go to Jerusalem. You don't have to go to a church building. You have to hear the word and be transformed by the word. The Messiah has come. He has told us all things. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. Repent of your sin. Believe in this gospel. I implore you. Luke says in verse 6, from the people in the city, there was a, a positive response. They paid attention to Philip. They heard him. They saw signs confirming his message. And in verse 8, there was much joy in the city. Great persecution, great lamentation, now much joy. only provided by the gospel. The only true joy in this world. The only true peace in this world. The only true contentment in this world. The only true satisfaction in this world. This city had it. It doesn't stop there, of course. As we said earlier, Stephen was the spark that set the world ablaze. He, we know the target audience would, would continue to shift as, as Peter would go to a house of, full, of a full-blown Gentile named Cornelius in chapter 10 where the Holy Spirit would fall on them the same way that he fell on the disciples at Pentecost. 
But we don't even make it out of this chapter without reading about a man from Ethiopia who will believe this gospel and go on to be baptized, showing us that through the persecution of Stephen, salvation had come not just to Jerusalem, not just to Judea, Samaria, but to the ends of the earth. Ends of the earth. There are many things we can take away from these eight verses. Many things. And I think three in particular will be key for us this morning. Two, which come from the, the, the former persecutor himself. Uh, number one, and certainly for a word for us today, Paul writes this to Timothy. He says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and suffering that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from, from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. This is the state of the world that you're living in right now, that I'm living in right now. We're living in a world that is under the power and control of the evil one. A world that will not get better and better, but as we can see, it will get worse and worse and worse. It's a, it's a world full of people who hate you, Christian. And they hate me. And increasingly so. That is, if we desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. And that's a big if. I love what Vody Balcom says. We actually put it in the bulletin this morning. He says, suffering is common for all. However, persecution, which is a form of suffering, can be avoided. All you have to do is compromise. Let me say that again. Suffering is common for all. However, persecution, which is a form of suffering, can be avoided. All you have to do is compromise. Everyone suffers in this world. Believers suffer. Unbelievers suffer. God lovers, God haters, Christ followers, Christ rejectors. We all have pain and sorrow. Suffering is just a part of life on a corrupted and cursed earth. But not all suffer persecution. Not all are persecuted for Christ's sake, for righteousness' sake. Christian, you can avoid this kind of suffering, he says, if you just compromise. If you try to be like the world, act like the world, look like the world, sound like the world, smell like the world, go along with the unbelieving world. Just say what they want you to say and do what they want you to do. It's easy to avoid persecution. The American church has been doing it for decades. Just compromise. Paul says, don't compromise. Strive to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. And when that happens, the world will hate you because Christ is using your testimony to shine light on their darkness. And and they love darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. Jesus knew this would happen. And yet he still comforts the persecuted with with these words this morning. Don't compromise. 
Second takeaway. Know the word of God and preach the word of God in season and out of season. Nobody has the gift of healing today. Nobody has the gift of tongues today. We don't need either of those things. We have the all-sufficient, all-authoritative word of God, which, which completely and clearly outlines all that we need to know for salvation and reconciliation to the Father. We have all we need. Uh, Paul again writes, I, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Uh, for the time is coming, so relevant. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but will have itching ears. With itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman here today. If you have been saved by the gospel of Christ and you know the gospel of Christ, you are here on this planet to tell others about salvation through Christ alone. Again, this is not gender specific, the work of an evangelist. Now what Paul said in his first letter to Timothy, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man Rather, she is to remain quiet. But what's the context for that? The church. The gathered church. The gathering of the general congregation. Corporate worship. But women are not to remain silent in the streets. Or in their home to their children. Or at their workplace. Or in the shops. Or the restaurants. Or the cities and the countries of this world. We are all uh, both believing men and women here to learn the truth, to be transformed by the truth and to scatter, to proclaim this good news to a world full of people that are enslaved to their own sin natures. That's what you're here for. And when you do that, you will inevitably be persecuted. But guess what? Uh, 2,000 years ago, God in human flesh walked the very earth that he spoke into existence and he lived a perfect, sinless, spotless life. A life full of love and mercy and truth and grace only to undergo the greatest injustice, the greatest persecution the world has ever seen. But even knowing beforehand what awaited him at Calvary, he said this to those who would eventually follow him. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And that's our final takeaway for this morning. 
the world has always persecuted the servants of God, which is exactly what Stephen was preaching on in Acts chapter 7. The world hates you. The world hates you because the world hated him. And the world continues to hate him. But blessed are you when that happens, my brother and sister. Blessed are the persecuted. I would encourage you this morning to take this example of Christ, take the example of Stephen, of Philip, of the early church, to to rest in the sovereignty of God in every circumstance, in every detail of your life on earth, to recognize that God is not only aware of your tribulations in life, including your persecutions, but that he will in fact use them to, to refine you to conform you into the image of his son and ultimately even bring glory to himself through them. And this reality should give us all a tremendous amount of peace and comfort as we live out the rest of our lives in this seemingly chaotic world. Amen? Amen. Close with me in prayer and uh, Noel and the others will come up and lead us in musical worship. We hope that you have been ministered to through this week's exposition of God's Word. If you would like more information about our church and services, please visit our website or email us at info, that's I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Again, that's info, I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Lakewood Bible Chapel. 